Sunil Paul is the CEO of Spring Free EV, a trailblazing company focused on accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles through innovative fintech solutions. With over 20 years in the tech and clean energy sectors, Sunil is celebrated as a visionary in sustainable transportation and green technologies. He's been featured in numerous articles on the future of mobility, green tech, and the gig economy in renowned publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, Bloomberg, and Wired. His expertise has been sought after at premier events such as TechCrunch Disrupt, the MIT Energy Conference, Green Biz Forum, and more. Before his leadership at Spring Free EV, Sunil was the co-founder and CEO of Sidecar, a pioneering ride-sharing platform that revolutionized urban transportation. Under his guidance, Side. Uh, Sidecar was heralded for its innovative approach and its early emphasis on sustainability. The platform's groundbreaking strategy set benchmarks for the ride-sharing industry. Uh, you've had an incredible journey uh, and has spanned various tech ventures, marking you a key influencer since the inception of the internet era. He holds a degree in electrical engineering from Vanderbilt University. Thank you for sticking with me here. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a long journey and I can't wait to, to, to get to know more of it. So thank you for, uh, for being here with us. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. All right. So let's, let's start this off with, for those who've never heard of spring free EV, who are its customers? What problem are you helping them solve? Yeah. Yeah, our customers, and part of the reason why you don't hear as much about it is this is a B2B company, um, at, at least for now. Uh, and the the focus really is how do we make electric vehicles more affordable and grid-friendly with just software? Not having to change new battery chemistries or uh, you know some major change to the hardware. Um, and the way we do this is really through uh, fintech by leaning into some of the advantages of electric vehicles, things that are unique to electric vehicles that gas and diesel really can't do. So one is that even though there's a premium for electric, as long as you're using the vehicle, it actually costs less over its lifetime because of lower fuel and lower, ma uh, lower maintenance costs. The second is that there's a tremendous amount of government support for electric vehicles and the charging infrastructure. And uh, you know that that's also unique. And the third is that because it interacts with the grid, with the utility, if that's done in a smart way, you can actually get paid for those uh, services to the grid and uh, generate revenue there. So our aha, our kind of realization is that if we can capture those economic advantages use the common technology that's that's possible across all the electric vehicles because they're all connected cars unlike gas and diesel mm. then we can make electric vehicles more affordable take all those economic advantages kind of group them together and bring down that upfront cost and make the electric vehicle more grid friendly so that not only can you deploy more electric vehicles but all that battery power can be used as a resource to get the grid to be even cleaner than it is today. So that's the big ambition for this company is that we can have climate level impact by dramatically accelerating 
electric vehicle adoption um, in ways that simply would not be possible if we don't do this. So yeah, that's what we're up to. I know this has been uh, building a a more sustainable planet in essence, right? A, a cleaner, uh, environmental friendly uh, world is something that has been with you for some time. And um, and so with Spring Free, you, you, you founded the uh, Spring Free in 2021. So a, a couple of years ago. That's correct. Yeah. Um, when it comes to validating a business problem, how yeah. do you go... Or how are you doing it for your first customers at Spring Free? Because for founders, especially when they just get started, right? They have that thesis, they have that idea of what the problem is. How do you go about validating that? Uh, it's a great question. I think it's one of the most important lessons and uh, observations that, that 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 entrepreneurs have to learn. It's the natural tendency to not want to get your idea out in front of customers. Hmm. It's not good enough. We all want ace, you know, right? Like everybody wants an A and we're all trained by educational institutions to get it perfect. You can't do that in entrepreneurship. You have to be willing to put forward the version that is terrible and you know it's terrible, but it cuts to whatever the core value proposition is. It cuts to whatever the main point or main pain point of, of your customer. So in the case of Spring for EV, um, you know, our hypothesis was that the cost, the upfront cost of electric vehicles was a major uh, pain point. So we took our early version of um of you know basically a, a lease product, a specialty lease product, and put it in front of uh, small fleet managers, people who had you know anywhere from five to to a couple hundred vehicles. Uh, often they didn't have any electric vehicles, and could we get real orders like people paying us or willing to pay for um, for that particular value proposition? And what we basically found is that everybody wanted to do it, whether or not they were good candidates for it, for their own financial health, or whether or not um, they actually ended up transacting with us is a different question. But mm -hmm. the um, but it was clear. I mean, the demand signal was very, very strong. Um, when you say almost all of them, here's here's here's. Uh, I just want to add an additional question to this, which is. When do you know that you actually do have something? Yeah. Uh, you it, know, that's a hard one. And I've so seen, hard to figure out. And I've, so I've seen founders, founders, I've noticed founders that have had a successful product in the past have a much better sense of when it's the right sign and when it's not the right sign because they've seen it. Yeah. They, they've seen something that said, well, when we did this, this was the the response to it, and I'm not getting that that similar response. But how do you know here that did you have a similar reaction to here's, that, or what was enough? Here's my general rule of thumb: uh, is that I'd rather be like I'd rather have a small percentage of 
potential customers absolutely love, like want the product yesterday, then have everybody say, yeah, that's nice. We can get to that eventually. Like, that's interesting. Like, you don't want interesting. You want, oh my God, I need this. I need it now. Mm. I need it yesterday. Um, because if you can't get that, especially as a startup, like, look, it, the stuff's just not going to work as well as you think it is in the early days, early years. And so you need customers that are willing to put up with that. My my favorite story around that is my second company, Brightmail. It's the first anti-spam uh, email security company. And so we didn't have any comparables to, to go and talk. We just knew that spam was becoming a problem for large email systems like ISPs, not really for others. So the question was, okay, is this a big enough problem that that they're willing to pay some real money for, you know, six figures at least? And so <laughs> I actually had a first version of the product that involved client software, and I took it out to a number of ISPs. And the general response was, yeah, that's interesting. We don't really love adding client software. Mm. And so I assembled the team, the very, very small little contractor team I had. And I was like, okay, this idea's not going to work. We're going to kill it. And because I keep hearing they don't want to do anything on the client side. And I don't see how we can make this work on the server side. And then I literally, I went up to the whiteboard and I'm like, well, well, how would it work on the server side? and sketch it out. And that ended up being the basis of Brightmail. Um, and then That's I took that same idea back. And, and by the way, all the people that were working on it were all client-side developers. So, you know, I, I kind of had to go back to the drawing board, literally, um, in terms of team as well. And then I took it back to all those same customers, potential customers, and said, okay, here's this new idea. It would only be server-side. Here's how it would work. Like, if I built this, like, would you buy into it? And every one of them was like, yes, we, like, we don't know what to do. We're, most of them were failing miserably at controlling spam. So the best example of this is that, okay, so now we've raised a bunch of money. I forget how much we raised, four or $5 million, which is a lot back then to raise. Yeah. It was 1990 something. Um, and we had the first version of our product. We're shipping it out to these big ISPs like Earthlink and Verizon and some others. And we get the reports back on how effective it is. And it's terrible. It only catches, <laughs> it's only catching 50% of the spam. 50%. Oh, 50%. 50%. I mean, that's better than nothing. Well, that's exactly what the customer said. <laughs> They're like, yeah, we expect it to be better, but to be honest, our own systems are only catching like 20 or 30%. So it's better than we had. So no, don't take that's it back. When, it's that's when you know you you it's a really big problem where even incrementally improving it just a little is more than enough for the customer. Right. Now they expected it to be better than that, and it did. I mean, now I mean Bride Mail is still a product out there under Symantec, and um by the time we sold it, it was I don't know, 99. It was very, very high percentage catching spam. Um, but like that, 
fifty percent like a product that only works half the time. <laughs> half the <It's> time. Terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. So um but did you you so, didn't lose you didn't lose customers. We didn't lose those customers, no. No. They 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 once we got it fully done, we they paid us six figures a year to to implement that system. How so uh, yeah. No, go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, I was gonna say for uh for Spring for EV, uh, it also matters that, and for Brightmail, like in my view, it's okay to start with a small segment that really, really cares about the product. Um, so, you know, Brightmail was only the large ISPs. Corporations weren't yet having a problem with spam. Um, at Spring for EV, we started with small, medium-sized fleet managers. And even within that world, we started with just those that rent out cars to others. Not, now, only recently are we starting to get regular corporates like, uh, I don't know, electronics repair shops and um, uh, uh, people who are uh, moving their equipment around for setting up events and just all kinds of, because it turns out two thirds of the fleet vehicles in the United States are owned by or operated by these small, medium sized fleets, not by Hertz and Enterprise mm -hmm. and Ryder and everyone else, which is kind of where everybody's mind goes. So, yeah. so anyway, like having a small segment that really, really cares is way more valuable in the beginning than like, you know, medio mediocre interest across lots and lots of people. When you reached out to those small fleet owners, was the pricing model the same as it is now you know let's no. say when it's it's evolved it's and evolved. how and how do you because pricing is so crucial and it's so important how how but many founders uh including myself right every every time you're trying to figure it out you know what makes most sense how did you figure out what made sense for them well we the the initial version that we put out was frankly um very different than what we do today and um because we're balancing it with the other side of the market in other words a source of capital um that that was a non-starter so then so that was like okay if you're trying to if you've got another set of constituencies another set of customers which in our case we do we have capital as one of our customers um you know, it has to work for both sides. So that's one way you know that your pricing's off. The other really important bit of insight was provided by uh, uh, one of the co-founders who um, he was basically a, a retired venture capitalist. He's been through lots and lots of companies. Yep. And we were, <laughs> we were thinking about pricing. His basic advice was higher than you think is appropriate. Because like everybody loves a cheap price. So you don't really know if you're getting product market fit if your price is really low. Mm. Whereas if your price is a little bit high and people are still loving what you're doing, then okay, you've got something. Because no one is going to complain when you lower your price. But you might lose significant numbers of customers if you raise your prices later. So that I think is an important um, principle now that I carry with me. I um, love that. Marty, yeah. Marty is the one who, who put that in our heads. 
Have so you ever- honestly, whenever we think about things now, we always take the attitude of just, especially with a new thing, like whatever we think the high end is, let's see if that'll work first. Mm. And that doesn't work fine. Maybe it is a pricing question. We need to bring it down. And, you know, obviously we need to make money on it. Um, but yeah, try to start high because also things are not going to work ex- exactly according to plan. So if you price it down to like a really, really thin margin and something goes wrong or your expectations aren't met. You're like, shooting yourself you, in the foot. Yeah. yeah, you're done. Yep. Whereas things do like hooray, things do go according to plan. Again, no one will complain that you lowered your price. So you you mentioned uh, Brightmail and um, that was from 98 to 2004. It was acquired by Symantec for 370 million, whatever it was that was mentioned during that time. When did you know it was time to sell? Because we, we we have founders that are uh, growing and can be growing their companies fairly fast. And, and that's when they want to keep doubling down. But when do you, you know, for you personally, when did you realize this, this is, this is the moment for us? Well, so we had filed this one. We were ready to go public. We had a profitable company. This was 2004 after the dot-com crash. Yeah, you made it through the crash. Yeah, that's incredible. And had built a profitable company, which you kind of needed at that point, right? Like during 99, 2000, you could take companies public for way more. You know, <laughs> not making any money and no hopes of ever being profitable. And that was nuts. But the the pendulum kind of swang significantly the other direction and you kind of needed to show profitability and that that you're so it wasn't that anyway my point is that what we ended up uh we ended up getting an offer from semantic semantic was already an investor so they already had insight they were already on the board um you know when you file an s1 all your information's out there it's been vetted you it's it's if you're going to sell the company, it's actually a pretty good time because you're otherwise you're going to take a bunch of dilution. So I would say there's one of the best times to sell is when you have a natural built-in alternative. So a natural built-in alternative is you're about to raise a bunch of money. You're about to go public. You've got an existing offer from somebody else. What is a terrible time to sell is when you have no offers and your back's up against the wall and you're running out of money. Did that at Sidecar. And, um, mm. you know, happy to report we found a buyer um, and and exited to, to uh, General Motors. But that is not the situation you want. Uh, you want a situation because competition for the deal is the big driver for getting a good outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and competition can be, well, we're going to go public and the public's going to buy our shares, or we've got the significant investor lined up and they're going to put in another round of capital. Um, it both creates a competition and for the insiders, you're looking at trading it off against taking that dilution of and whatever that round of financing is. You you provide a perfect uh, transition talking about sidecar and and I I want to continue it so just to give some background uh, 
you've had the idea for ride sharing as far back as 97. Um, and, uh, I read your blog, I read all of it. Awesome storytelling uh, about your journey and, you know, waiting for your wife to pick you up and trying to figure out how come, like, you can't just ask a stranger to, you know, take you to your destination. And in essence, that, that that's when you were thinking about right sharing. So way back, um, bef so, and you also pushed, uh, uh, you, your ideas, uh, came into fruition with a bill that was passed in California that uh, allowed a car owner to make occasional income off their car without threatening their personal insurance, which was a massive barrier that would uh, that removed uh, and I lay the foundation for a ton of ride sharing companies as the ones that everyone knows now, you know, Uber and Lyft. So you've 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 been in that space for some time, um, and you've done some incredible work towards it. Um, you mentioned that sidecar, uh, you had to sell it, right? That you, it, you, it, you got to that phase where you wanted to sell it. Um, what were the steps, even those, a, a lesson of not, you know, this isn't something you don't do when you want to sell, uh, where, where things are not working out and, and there's a need and a necessity for you to find a buyer, but for those that are in that situation, what are what are things that you believe maybe you would go back and and, and give yourself advice on or uh, you know some pitfalls? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great uh, a great question. And so in in the case of um, I, someone else, I'm trying to remember who provided some great advice at the beginning of that process. Um, we were thinking about engaging an investment banker to help us with the process, mm -hmm. but basically found that at the price point that we were looking for, um, the minimum fee that an investment banker was typically looking for was about a million dollars. So that would have been a significant portion of the total amount. Mm. And that's kind of a minimum. And then otherwise they wanted, you know, a percentage of the, of the total amount. And, um, you know, you really, you you kind of want the best advisors in that capacity you can possibly get. And when you're doing a smaller size transaction, you typically don't get the best, most connected <laughs> people. Right. Um, I mean, just because the those people tend to get attracted to the bigger deals. So, mm -hmm. um so the advice was simply got to run an investment banking kind of process. And um, now luckily, uh, certainly I'd been through a number of different kinds of transactions. Very importantly, one of my board members, uh, Robert Goldberg had been through um, many, many kinds of fundraising and sale transactions. Mm. So uh, the two of us really kind of teamed up to, to go, uh, tackle this and it's a bit of a numbers game so you know you ultimately want two term sheets at least mm. so that you've got some competition for the deal well how do you get two term sheets well that means you probably need about five times that many to be in a serious mode of thinking about it in a deep diligence mode in order to get 
five in a deep diligence mode, you, you're probably going to need about 25 mm. that are seriously considering it um, and have taken, say, a first or second meeting. <clears throat> and then in order to get to those first or second meetings, you know, you probably need 50 to 100 that that you reach out to. Right. Like, oh, like when someone explained the math to me, I'm like, I'm like whoa, that means, oh, we got to reach out to anybody and everybody who might be a candidate. Uh-huh. So then we went through and we went through and just brainstormed every single possible company that might be a candidate. We ranked them then on three criteria. Are they acquisitive? They have a history of making acquisitions. Do they have the wherewithal to make an acquisition? Do they have enough market whatever? Mm. And can we get a hold of them? Like, do we have some way that we think we can get a hold of them? And basically, anybody who was two out of those three criteria, um, we we reached out to, and that I think more or less was fifty or sixty candidates. Um, and the math more or less did work that way. I mean, we in, in the end had had two term sheets and. Um, uh, one of them was terrible, <laughs> it was <basically laughs> but it was, it was something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other one was basically an aqua hire for nothing. That was the alternative deal that we could have done. Um, so, but at least we could credibly say we have an alternative, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> possibly the worst alternative you can think of, but, um, better than shutting down everything. Um, so that's such a wonderful uh, in hindsight right because i'm sure when you're going through it it is uh, horrific <laughs> and you know you say i'll never do this again but the sheer fact that that is that is an experience now that is under your belt that you say you know what like you can do this right you can right. you can you can share the golden nuggets with others and hopefully they can learn from this and and try not to find themselves in those situations. Um, and and this is the reality. I mean, with with Sidecar, you started off, and and for me personally, it's it's the failures that as long as you really learn what what went wrong and what could have been better, you know, what that's the golden nuggets. Those are the golden nuggets, right? That's what gives you experience and 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 allows you to make. Uh, uh, better decisions as as you as you continue growing personally and professionally, but with sidecar, totally yeah, with sidecar, 2011 you started it. Any other lessons learned? I know that there's a ton behind uh, testing this theory because now Uber, Lyft, sure, like of course that works, right? Like of course, but back in the day is like. Who the hell oh, yeah. would get in a stranger's car and why would you do that? And who, you know, like it just, by the way, this is a great example of don't listen to your friends. Your friends are either like, first of all, they tend to want to say, Oh yeah, that's a smart idea. You're so smart. <laughs> and that's great. Like you want friends to be supportive. Of yeah, what yeah. Um, now, funny enough, in this particular circumstance, Pretty much all my friends are like, there's no way I'd do that. <laughs> get into a stranger's car? No way. I don't you care. couldn't even like, get the 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 helpful, I'll be even, your I'll say something nice. No. No. 
No and way. I, I can't. I can't think of maybe one or two people, but by far and away, the answer was no. I'm not doing that. But you know, I had twenty something co-founders who, when we talked to their friends, uh-huh. they're like, "Yeah." I'd do that. <laughs> Especially if I save 10 bucks. I love that. How how was it? Small population that really cared versus, you know, satisfying everybody. Is that, and is that literally for, for Sidecar, is that how the market was tested? You, 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 yeah. you went to, to a bunch of, uh, friends or people within uh your group and said like hey if 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 it costs you this much and you could go from point a to point b would you do it um so i've been a believer ever since the very first company to get a really basic uh, this is kind of startup 101 now mm. but um even the very first company was like get a really low fidelity version of what it is that you think you're going to build and get it in front of people and potential customers mm-hmm. get their feedback. And some of this training was out of AOL where at AOL, we put pretty polished things in front of people. Um, but over the years, I just learned like, really just you just need to have a conversation with people mm. about the thing and they can't be your friends because sometimes your friends just want to, say you're so smart and sometimes your friends are the wrong demographic right so i you want to get it in front of uh people at some kind of resolution so even if it's a very kind of grainy version of of um of what you think the ultimate value is so i mean in the case of brightman that was just a conversation with people that were smart enough to like they they, I think, had enough credibility to say, you know, I can go right. build this complicated server thing. And my co-founder had built like big, complicated email server stuff at, at AOL uh, and elsewhere. Um, so, so that was that was all good. But in the case of Sidecar, like we just hired drivers, and in some cases, we did it with. You cars. drove, right? Didn't, didn't yeah, I you... drove. In fact, car, real clunker now, um, <laughs> was <laughs> the car that I drove around. Um, and um, by the way, it's also the car that I put into one of the first peer-to-peer car sharing uh, setups. Um, I love anyway, it. the yeah, we were like testing. Like, what's it really like? Yep have a car pick you up that's not a taxi that's not a limo now in many cases it was it was people we knew so we were testing like the rudimentary software of it but in other cases we're like literally like okay we're gonna hire some drivers we're gonna let people order um and and see where that the reactions and the reaction was yeah i was a little nervous once i got in and it was i was fine and it helped that you you know, you did background checks and all this stuff that you could do now that you couldn't do, you know, 10 years before that. What? So you, you were getting traction, then Lyft, Uber, yeah. all these guys were yeah. coming in. What do you, in hindsight, 
what do you look back and say, um, you know, the, the game we were playing this game or I was placing a ton of my energy here and maybe I could have been placing it here. Any, any, anything that, that comes back from yeah, that time? Yeah, there are time? lots of things that, there are many things. Um, I, think I mean, in hindsight, like, everything is, you know, oh, it's, it's, oh. it's, so, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so simple. Uh, Everything's it's clear not. Yeah. Uh, I think one, there were several macro things that were going on. One is, uh, I think I and the rest of the team, uh, including the board, everybody, we were a little slow to realize the strategic weapon of raising a lot of money mm. in order to get to very large scale. Um, we knew that it was a scale game. We knew there were network effects, all that stuff. Right. We were on that from the very beginning. That 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 was not something we missed. But Uber in particular was able to do this in to, to great effect of just raise huge amounts of money. And um, you know, it was an era where close to zero interest rates, mm. the willingness of investors to wait a long time um before you show profitability and to and to simply invest in growth. We're Grab no as much as the market era. as quickly as possible with as much money as you can raise, having pricing that doesn't, I'm sure that doesn't make any sense. Uh uh, you know, that that cost very little for consumers, I'm sure. And and that might have not been giving the the margins that they're thinking of, but it's all about that race of how quickly you can grow that that network. Yeah. I think that was one. I think another big one, you know, of course, that world has changed. Interest rates really do make a difference in overall dynamics mm -hmm. of the market. And they are like the they're the foundation on which everything is built. Um I think another one was simply not Lyft and its goofy pink mustache was super effective. Mm. And we were ahead of of them um, before they launched. And we're still ahead of them even after they launched. But the awareness built by the pink mustache really was super effective. And it didn't matter that it had nothing to do with a ride. It didn't matter that... <laughs> Right. It just generated awareness. It's stuck in people's mind. Yeah. That that thing with a mustache. Why not? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love talking about, I want to jump into a little into the um, talent and, you know, because yes, you have a product and all that, but at the end of the day, it's the, the individuals that, that are around you and what you're able to get done. What do you, what do you believe the role of a, like a, a CEO founder should be, does that role change as, as the team grows? Uh, Cause I know, I know that it does, but I'm curious in, in what yeah. ways do you see it? I, in the beginning, uh, every company that I've started or been involved in, like in the beginning, you are doing everything and being willing to do, you know, it kind of depends on the makeup of the founding team. So you're not necessarily doing everything. Um, you're, you're. I mean, I haven't coded anything real mm. since college, so um, uh, I'm not a coder. But you know, you're you're basically playing. Uh, uh, you're filling in the gaps for 
all the other talents around the table. And, you know, your kind of number one job is make sure there's adequate resources and uh, to, to, to continue to execute and to make sure that there's kind of like, I mean, it's ultimately about execution. And so you have adequate resources, you have clarity of vision and clarity of plan for what it is you're trying to go do. And then you got to have uh, adequate, the, the, the right mix of people and talents to, to go make it happen. And uh, any one of those three being off and uh, it throws yeah, off any the one of those three being off uh, and it's not going to work. <laughs> when, like you got to get all three working. When is it that, and this could be with uh, bright mail or sidecar or any of those uh, journeys that you've had, when does it, or did it make sense for you to make your first hires? Cause that's also something that that we see a lot with founders where uh you know when 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 do i make that first hire and and who should that first hire be um yeah and i'm sure there's there's questions that you ask yourself but what would those questions be and and when you remember doing that for for any of those companies yeah that's i i don't have a really clear uh um rules of thumb for that because uh, when I think about these different companies I've involved it with sometimes the first hire is simply uh, a co-founder that um, that you've kind of begun the journey with mm. and it makes sense to continue I, I I've definitely had many difficult co-founder conversations where it's <laughs> time yeah. for them to go um yeah. but so you know it's not like it's not like permanent employment or anything but um for for I, so, so for instance for like side for for sidecar um were the first hire developer was it in the marketing side was it like who from what you remember well, Sidecar was a bit of a unique situation because I'd already been working on variations mm -hmm. and I actually found um, this little company in 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 Michigan um, that was doing, they were building software for, um, for Android and for bus routing. I think that's what it was doing. Anyway, back when that was not a common mm -hmm. type of software. This company was doing something pretty interesting. So um, I think I called him up. I don't even remember how I found out about him. Yeah. But I just called him up and said, hey, I'm interested in this category. I flew up there, pitched him on the sort of vision of where we're headed with what I want to do. And basically it's like, come do it with me like let's go create a company so we actually took that original company the llc and that's how and it morphed evolved. it into sidecar so um 
Oh, what about for, for an unusual journey? Um, what about for starting? spring, uh, for spring free, you, you, yeah. you raised, and then who were the first, uh, you know, who were the first employees and that you recruited and was there a reason for bringing in them that those particular responsibilities? Yeah. Well, with spring for EV, had a maybe everything's unusual. I don't know. I, mean, I, I can give you a <laughs> typical example of of uh, of freeloader and bright mail. Those are maybe more typical. But with Spring for EV, I was literally just trying to sort out some ideas. Uh -huh. I was not clear about this is going to be a company. In fact, the original idea was that it would be a fund that would fund other companies to go in this space mobility electric uh, vehicle kinds of things and um and so you know part of the reason why i reached out to uh one of the co-founders marty um was because retired venture capitalist he'd done a bunch of fund stuff also already a friend of mine and so that always makes it easier <laughs> right um, and along the journey of figuring out what makes sense to actually take advantage of this opportunity and turn it into some, you know, world impact level company, um, we realized actually a fund doesn't make any sense. An actual company makes sense. And, you know, that was the beginning of of building it out, bringing in co-founders at that point. Um, now, funny enough, we had already raised money for something that was more similar to a fund idea. Um, mm. And we kind of morphed it into the, the company idea. So again, that's kind of a weird, unusual circumstance. Uh, a, weird, a much uh, more typical scenario it. was the first two companies where there's early idea formation in the first one, you know, um, I met Mark, Mark Pincus, who uh, most well known for starting Zynga, um, but he's also done a bunch of other things on his own, uh, you know, after, after a uh, freeloader. Um, I met him in a pizzeria introduced by mutual friends. And, um, you know, we, we decided to go work on this set of ideas together, hadn't yet decided to start a company. Once we validated, oh, this is a real genuine idea right. then, then we decided to to start a company. Um, in the case of Brightmail, I had already done a lot of the validation, already knew that I wanted to start a company, and then brought in co-founders. Um, and so but it kind and, of varies and, depending on the situation. Got it. So you 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 talked uh, you mentioned a bit on, and this will we we're getting close to the end here. I want to be respectful of your time, but you you talked about funding. Um, you've You've been a founder that has raised and and then you've also are a founding partner of Spring Ventures and you've you've an angel investor. So you've you've experienced funding from both sides. Um, yes. What what advice can you offer founders when it comes to, uh, you know, fundraising their their first round? Uh, what should they prioritize? Are there are there certain pitfalls that you say, you know, just make sure to avoid certain things or keep an eye out for this and this, anything that comes to mind? I mean, 
there's so much advice out there on how to do this. I would actually say uh, that same lesson about the sale of sidecar also applies to fundraising. In other words, there's there's an interesting dynamic at work. It's not just in fundraising and selling companies, college applications and job applications. The transaction cost of both sides has gotten lower. In other words, if you're trying to raise money, it's much easier to reach out to a lot of different investors than it used to be and track them and track the docs end and keep them in a CRM and blah, blah, blah. I could never keep all that stuff straight in my head back <laughs> with the first two companies. No way. Right. Like this crazy number of prospects. At the same time, the receivers of those, like the deal flow that I get, relatively small investor, is pretty sizable. And then I can go on to angel list and get, you know, even a crazy more volume. Right. Both sides are just seeing a much greater volume. So as a founder, you have to kind of be prepared to talk to lots of investors. Don't expect like, you know, back in the day, the advice to me was, well, you want to like go talk to three or four, tell each one of them that they're super special. <laughs> and, you know, if you can't close one of them, then move on to another three or four, and then move <laughs> on to another three or four. And if that doesn't work, then recalibrate. But, in today's world, like you can reach out to 30 just as well as you can reach out to three. So yeah. it's, um, and the other side is looking at not just, oh, we got two deals we want to look at today. They're looking at 20 deals. And like, yeah. so a little bit more like, you know, when you're buying a house, a real estate agent will also always tell you, well, you just need one house. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't matter how many you look at, you can look at a lot, but you only need one. Same thing as the buyer. Well, you know, you need more than one investor, but you don't need 500 investors. You just need, you know, a handful. Uh, yeah, a couple. But you kind of need to be prepared to go out and talk to a lot um, and have a CRM and keep track and, you know, monitor, uh, have a whole doc send or whatever other document management system. Because um, otherwise, otherwise you, you, you just won't be, you won't be playing the volume that you kind of need to. Um, at the same time, you can't just, you know, spray and pray. <laughs> the time emails yes. And expect that, oh, if I send out 500 emails, I'll, then it's it's going to work out. Surely, at least somebody will. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. You still have to pay. You still got to love each one, All right. as if uh, they're special. Right now with Spring Free, is there anything? Uh, so from our community, again, I wanna I wanna thank you very much for the time and and for sharing your journey with us. Anything you want to share about Spring Free that we didn't get to cover? That's important for us to to know. Uh, about where you are, uh, what you're doing, anything that uh, you you like well, to share. Well, thanks for that. I, I, um, you know, look, we're we're out to have climate level impact, and I, um, I believe that this company can can do it. So, um, we're always looking for great talent, 
Mm. That's always uh, something I'm on the lookout for. Um, you know, may or may not be a position right away, but um, like when we find people that are uh, especially great fits, you know, there there are many people that I kind of uh, keep in our orbit because as we grow, we're going to want to be able to 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 pull more and more people in. At some, when you're in hyper growth, talent is often the constraining factor. Um, mm. we're, we're not yet in that like crazy growth phase that I've experienced with you know many other companies, um, but we're we're preparing ourselves to be in that crazy growth phase. So, so yeah, and like we're a very entrepreneurial company, so building the experience of what it's like to to grow uh, rapidly and also to I feel like I've dramatically improved um, our own techniques for uh, for innovation and iteration inside this company um, and when it, that's, a whole, that's a that's a whole other podcast on its own but uh, uh yeah, when it comes to, to partnerships, honest. when it comes to partnerships or like uh, channel marketing distribution, is there are there any any particular uh, entities out there that you're at the moment looking to you know connect with anything like that? Because that might be. Yeah, I mean, we have plenty of people in so many different industries that I have no doubt there there could be uh, introductions or things like that. Anybody who touches the activity of fleet management <clears throat> in one way or another through financing, through technology, through uh, supplier, <clears throat> directly managing fleets. Um, all those people are, are ones that are uh, potentially helpful to us. Um, we have, in addition to this kind of lease product that I've described, we just introduced a new product, which is uh, a bit esoteric. Um, but if you know anything about renewable energy finance, which hmm. many of us on the team, the founding team do, um, it's something called tax equity. Mm -hmm. And tax equity is uh, about a $20 billion segment out of renewables. We're the first to have introduced it as an electric vehicle tax equity product. Hmm. And in simple terms, what it provides <clears throat> is a way to uh, it fits into the the financing structure of someone who's financing uh, a bunch of electric vehicles and provides them capital that otherwise is very expensive and helps protect them against uh, the fall in the value of the vehicle uh, over the term of whatever the lease or whatever it is. Um, these are major pain points in the industry right now is how do you manage the the EV tax credits? And I would say almost everyone is scared of what's going to be, what's going to be the value of these vehicles three, five, eight years from now. Hmm. Um, so it's a new product that's designed for very large applications, large fleets, larger um, uh, financings, uh, and we're getting a lot of interest in it. We just announced it two weeks ago. So it's wow. uh, 
Very cool. It's, it's hot off the off the hot off the press. <laughs> you heard it here, um, Sunil. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good rest of the day. Bye bye.